I am now joined by someone who probably needs no introduction to the ETF Prime audience, Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg. And if for some reason you're not already familiar with Eric, he co-hosts Bloomberg's ETF-focused TV show, ETF IQ. He co-hosts Bloomberg's ETF-focused podcast, Trillions. He's written two books, The Institutional ETF Toolbox and The Bogle Effect. I highly recommend both of those for all types of investors. And I'm actually trying to get Eric to write a third book on this uh, Bitcoin ETF saga, which I'm sure we'll get into. Eric is now on the line with me from uh, Philadelphia. Eric, so great to uh, connect, and thank you for joining me. Great to, great to be here. And I always am curious what, what song you're going to bring me in on, and that was perfect. A, I'm a huge Pixies fan. I actually saw them at Vanderbilt University's gym back in high school when I lived in Tennessee for two years, uh, right after their last album. They were a little before my time, but I caught them right before they broke up. Um, and that song is obviously one of their greats, but kind of, I think, taps into how I've been feeling lately covering this Bitcoin saga. There are times when I feel like I'm losing my mind a bit. Uh, there's so many elements and, you know, sort of little uh, like trap doors that you fall down and little underworlds. The whole thing is wild. So good choice today. Yeah, I uh, I missed yesterday. I was offline in the afternoon and I saw all this uh, stuff going around about iShares. XR. What what happened? Like, honestly, I, I was offline and uh, missed the whole thing. Okay, so somebody, you know how um, uh, iShares filed a legal name for an Ethereum trust last week? Yeah. And somebody caught that? And I confirmed it with BlackRock that that was true. And then that day, they fi- uh, the next day, they filed the 19B4. And so all that was legitimate. And somebody had just caught it on this Delaware Corporation site where you go to um, le- make a name legal before you file. It's actually like almost like the precursor to a filing. So someone had the wherewithal to like scrape this site, I guess. So that was legit. We all remember that. Now they have an Ether future file. The same exact... Um, look on the site for an XRP ETF, um, or trust rather. So I went in, typed it in, it's on the site, and it's filed by the same guy who's an executive at BlackRock. Everything's the same. I thought somebody just like uh, doctored a, uh, a screenshot, but it's literally on the site. So I was like, is this real? You know, again, where, is this real? Where is my mind? You know, <laughs> is this real? what is real, mate? I don't even know anymore. So I call BlackRock. And they deny it. They said, and you can say a spokesperson said it's false. So I, I put out, hey, this is false. And apparently that, and I think James's tweet, caused the XRP spike to come back down. It went up 7% and then back down when it was confirmed that it's not true. And then all of these maniacs got mad at me, and they still think I'm lying. And they, I guess they just were so bummed that it wasn't true. They think that either I made it up or that BlackRock told me that, to like use me just to buy some time or, you know, uh, the whole thing is crazy. Most of the Bitcoin people have been pretty um, cordial. This XRP crowd is a whole different ballgame. I mean, this is like, like I said, this is like, um, you know, walking down a city block and you go into the wrong alley. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, you know, like I said, there's trapdoors everywhere. Uh, they got real like angry at me and um, I, I, my conscience is clean. I did nothing wrong. The whole thing's false. But the idea that some whack job went in there and actually forged BlackRock's name and stuff 
just to get a pop in this, uh, you know, XRP token or um, uh, crypto is pretty crazy. Like BlackRock is going to look into this. Uh, this guy could be in trouble or girl, I guess. But it's whoever did this is it's a whole like this, this is part of what gets what bugs me is this kind of justifies a bit of what Gens was talking about with fraud and manipulation and hucksters. And like this feeds into that. I still think Bitcoin, obviously you and I are both for it, but this does like justify a little bit what he's saying. And I've largely been trying to sort of, you know, be against all the caution because I do think an ETF would be the best way to access it. But this, this isn't good. This is a bad thing. This is, I'd almost argue this is worse than the coin telegraph fake news. Because someone literally went in there and like faked BlackRock's name. That's it's just I mean, person could be fined or go to jail. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out how, how it all happened. There's no I don't really have the real story yet, but um we'll see if it comes out. Yeah, no question. Sounds like for sure a legal issue for whoever filed that uh, fraudulent trust. But I think to your point, and we can come back to this later, James uh, Safer, your colleague, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There is no more passionate crowd on Twitter or X than the crypto crowd. And that passion can be used for both good and bad, right? Uh, we've, we've seen both sides of it. Uh, it just It's amazing something like that comes out. Uh, if this was any other segment of the market, you wouldn't see near that type of uh, traction and interest. Uh, but in any event, no. let, let's come back yeah. to that. I do yeah. want to talk spot Bitcoin ETFs and all that. I'm afraid that if we get into that now, we're not going to have time yeah. for the other areas, right? No. So it, half an hour will go by. Yeah. Okay. So so let's do this. I have several ETF topics I want to ask you about. Um, I also want to weave in a few open-ended questions for you, which I, I think are right in your wheelhouse, and we can see where those take us. But I did bill your appearances going around the world of ETFs. So we need to make sure to do that and not focus on uh, on Bitcoin ETFs. And then I'll be sure to save us some time at the, uh, the, the end for that topic. And so I want to start with a few stories I was actually discussing with Betify's Dave Nottig last week. All of these uh, I know you have interesting takes on. And so the first is JEPI, the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF. And I would say really uh, all of these covered call or options overlay ETFs. I told Dave... I think this entire category is a bubble. I, I think there are way too many of these ETFs coming to market. And even when you look at JEPI, which that's clearly here to stay, that's not going anywhere. I am shocked by the amount of money it's taken in this year. Some $13 billion, even though it's underperformed the S&P 500 by about 10%. Now, that said, I like your take on, on this category. You call these uh, ETFs boomer candy, which, by the way, Eric, I said at the top, I don't know where you come up with this stuff. <laughs> I love it. But. Well, to be fair, that one I listed um, from – I got it from uh, someone at Simplify. Um, but I was – the reason they brought it up is someone in their shop used that term. But I was tell, telling that person that um, – I, I, I used to use the phrase nervous boomers. Because just like the drug industry, pharma, if you can, like, make a drug that does something for a boomer, you're going to get money because they have all the money. So if you're in the financial industry and you can, like, calm the nerves of a nervous boomer, um, you're going to get money. It's, it just seems obvious that you would make products to satiate the nerves of boomers so they can sleep better at night. And to me, Jeffy does that because you get this – the yield buffers your downturn because that, that income acts as a little bit of a buffer on the downturn. You obviously give up your upside, a lot of it, to be honest, um, in Jeffy's case. And I think that's a fine trade-off. Boomers are willing to make that melt-up upside. I will trade that away to give me a little protection from the downside. So 
And as an advisor, Nate, I'm sure you know this, that the J.P. Morgan brand sounds kind of like top shelf, like like almost like the, the kind of stuff that only the, the special people get. And so I think you've got this J.P. Morgan brand, you've got the yield, uh, and you've got the low fee. Um, it, it all adds up to a, a really sellable product, in my opinion. But take away the J.P. Morgan brand for a moment. So what about all these uh, non-J.P. Morgan issuers who are offering covered call ETFs? I think you had a tweet on this. It was like McDonald's versus McDowell's. Yeah. I, do, you think these, do you think these are going to make it? Because, again, I, I feel like there's just too many of these products out there. I hear what you're saying in terms of yeah. the attractiveness to boomers. I just wonder if, if again, this, this space is oversaturated. It probably is. I mean, you know, every couple of years we see a craze. And to me, this, this equity income covered call thing is a bit of a craze. It reminds me of currency hedged ETFs uh, about 10 years ago. And remember, everybody launched currency hedged ETFs. It got to the point where it was like, let's do currency hedge plus multi-factor. Currency hedge plus low vol plus EM. You know, they were adding like three or four things together. Most of those are gone. That said, DXJ and ATDJ and, you know, uh, some of the iShares ones still exist. And when people want that trade, that ETF's there. It's got plenty of liquidity. I think the same thing will happen here. I, I think Jeffy and JepQ. JepQ, honestly, you know, I even think is more impressive. It seems like you get a little more of that juice because the upside in the Qs is better. And the uh, sharp ratio on this thing is, is really good. Um, and there's still the yield factor, and it's still cheap. But uh, JepQ is almost like the uh, uh, bigger, quicker, faster, younger brother of Jeppy. Because I think Jeppy, one thing is the, the lack of juice. You know, the, the S it, it really lagged by a good amount. And remember, over the years, there were these hedge products have, have come out over the years, and mostly people don't like them because it's just too hard for people to see a rally of say 18%, and you get like three. That's just too much. Whereas most people were like, okay, I'll get 10% of the rally. I could live with that. Jeppy, I don't think, caught enough. But to your point, people still keep buying it. So we'll see if that lasts. But the idea of doing covered call, I think at least as long as the rates are high, right, you can get 5% in money markets. So therefore, you got to do something extra for higher yield. So you can get 10 11% in some of these. So if rate, you got to do something more than 5%, obviously. So as long as rates are high, these, you know, the high yield should attract some people. And then again, boomers with all this money and they just, I don't know, they don't want to be just in cash. It just seems like they're going to hang around for a while until the regime changes or the environment. Um, like if the Fed lowers rates, I think that's the, the sort of kryptonite to these. Um, but if they, you know, if we stay in this higher rate environment, I, I think they should have a decent shelf life, but we'll see. But I think some will close, you know, some of the ones that copied and came like, uh, you know, recently, um, you know, some of them will, will bite the dust. Uh, over time. Okay, so let me ask you this. Um, another story I covered last week that is somewhat related to Jeppy's success is your uh, observation that the rise of active ETFs isn't everything that it appears to be, that when you start uh, <clears throat> sort of peeling back the layers and looking at the products taking in real money, it's not traditional stock-picking ETFs that are finding success. It's what you called solution-oriented funds, like we were just talking about with these covered call ETFs. And so I'd love to have you expand on that because we keep hearing about uh, this rise of active ETFs. But do you think this is a little bit of smoke and mirrors? Yeah, I do. I think um, if you look at, okay, so first of all, DSA and Avantis is very active light. They, they hold a lot of beta. So right, right off the bat, that's not really like majorly active. But at the end of the day, even if they're systematic, uh, there is an active element to it. 
And but even if you we agree, all agree that's active, a lot of the money into those funds, especially DFA, seems to have come from the mutual funds. The mutual funds have seen, you know, a, enough outflows that it could fund all of their ETFs. I'm not saying it's a one for one shot, but a lot of the people who have seen outflows, Capital Group and DFA in particular from their mutual funds, those are the people seeing inflows in ETFs. So let's just assume a good chunk of that is BYOA, meaning it's just one client moving over to the new format. Well, that's not really organic interest. And then where there is organic flows like a JEPI or the buffer products, most of those are active in name only. Like you could probably indexify all that, even though Hamilton Reiner does a great job managing JEPI and there are some active decisions in there. And I think they have it active just to make, just to execute a little better. Arguably, it, it, you know what it's going to do. It's not active in the traditional sense of Peter Lynch walking into the mall and seeing like a line in Nike and being like, I'm buying that stock. That's like the sort of traditional active manager that the media is like always talking about when they talk about the return of active. That thing, that, that special person who has like their pulse on society and stocks, that's largely gone. It, it's a myth because DFA and Avantis are largely – systematic that i call that quantitative active and again a lot of it's coming from the mutual funds um capital group might be you know partially holding that old banner but again it's that whole thing is dying i think kathy wood was a bright spot but kathy wood had performance that was just you know generational i mean she outperformed every fund for like two years like a hundred percent of them and she's a very charismatic figure so it's possible we'll get these shooting stars once in a while but I just think a lot of what is billed as the return of active is actually things that are really rules-based. I mean, Jeppy, if Jeppy, if, if the guy who ran Jeppy said, oh, I, I think rates are going to go down, I'm going to go buy a bunch of tech stocks and just, like, sell all this stuff and stop doing covered call, uh, people will be pissed off. They're not buying it for his thoughts on the Fed. They're buying it for this thing, which is covered call, yield, little downside protection, um, and that, that he has to do that. So, in a way... Jeppy is not being bought to like beat the market, so to speak. It's being bought more to provide this function or um, what would you call that? Like a, a service, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a myth of the return of active. It's more nuanced. You mentioned um, Kathy Wood. That made me think of your beta adjusted fee demarcation line, which I, I love this. If listeners haven't seen this, go check out Eric's Twitter handle. You can find the chart out there, but I think this is spot on and obviously relevant to what we're discussing here. Do you want to explain that concept? Again, I, I love this. Yeah. So if you um, picture a graph and on the bottom you have a, a fee and on, and on the other axis you have active share. So and then you draw a 45 degree angle. That is the beta adjusted fee demarcation line. In other words, if you, all the funds above that line do seem to do well. In other words, the further out you go or up the graph is active share, you can charge more, right? So Kathy Wood is on the upper right because she has high active share, but she charges a lot. But her active share is high enough that it's above that 45-degree angle. But like DFA and Avantis and Jeppy have a lo much lower active share. They're more like 50%, 60% active share versus Kathy's like 99. They have lower fees. They're all below 40 basis points. So they all kind of live on or above that demarcation line. And we just looked at the 10 most popular active ETFs and they all kind of live above the line. And then we looked at, and then we took different categories. They like were like, oh, let's just do active value. And, and it, it, that was true there too. And then we did, let's do smart beta value. 
and it kind of works there too. So the moral of the story is because Vanguard made beta free, if you're active and you have a lot of beta in your fund, like you look at the holdings, you see Apple and JP Morgan and Google, and you're like, well, you know, that you could tell that's a beta heavy, as they say, low tracking error fund. Um, you need to charge less money. You need to beta adjust that fee. You, you need to, you, cause I can get beta for free. So just charge me for the active. And I think that's fair. I think, so I think there's going to be a great repricing of all of active. And once they reprice themselves, I think they're going to find a home in the new world, which is good because I don't think we want everything to go passive. But again, this is all part of, um, and you mentioned my books, the second book, The Bogle Effect. This is all part of the, the Vanguard effect or the Bogle effect. Um, you know, making beta free is just, again, it's an explosion in the whole financial apparatus, and activists had to deal with this. And the way they dealt with it is they either got, got to get cheap enough so that they are competitive with the core, which is like, a, say, a cheap Vanguard fund. Or they got to get wild and crazy so they can be a complement and be hot sauce to, to complement that. Because at the end of the day, even though is, uh, you know, bogleheads might be like, well, I can just buy three funds and need nothing else. But a lot of mortal people, they might go cheap core 60-40 and pay five basis points for all that, which is a great, it's like utopia. But it's boring. You got to wait 30 years and you do nothing. You can, people want to have a little fun on top and cure their FOMO. So they would have had, you know, that's where ARC has a longevity, I think, because they're used not for the main money, but for the, you know, the FOMO itch. Uh, you can have something like, um, you know, even like play with leverage ETFs, have a Robinhood account, uh, thematic ETFs. There's all kinds of, or just a single stock that like might not be in the S&P. A lot of things can go in that hot sauce bucket, which we think makes up maybe 10, 15% of a portfolio. And that's, that is good in a way because as an advisor, you know this, people uh, want to, they just want to do stuff. You know, it's hard to just sit there for 30 years. So, I think the hot sauce bucket actually uh, serves a behavioral purpose because it helps you not touch the other 85, which has to grow like a tree. It just it takes years and years for that magic of compounding to kick in. So I just think this is the new regime is the modern portfolio, 85% cheap, 15% hot sauce. And the beta adjusted fee demarcation line is active recognizing that change finally. I think that's all extremely well said. I mean, if I were to summarize this, the bottom line is investors are not going to pay up for closet indexing, right? If you're going to closet index, it better be cheap. Now, if you have yeah. re if you have real active share, you're truly doing something much different than the benchmark. Well, well, fine. You can try to get away with higher fees, but you can't closet index and have higher fees. It's just not going to yeah. going to fly. Well, so he, so in the '80s and '90s, you had to closet index if you're active because you are literally the money for my kid's education. But because Vanguard came in and made all beta free, uh, that instantly made that closet indexing active irrelevant. So they served a purpose for a while. But what's, what's, what's tough on them is now they're, a lot of them are stuck because if they go full Cassie Wood, they're going to lose some of the old boomer clients that actually bought them for the core. And you can't get crazy if you're if somebody's core. So they're kind of stuck being high-cost closet indexing. And if they lower their fee, they're going to take a massive cannibalization hit to the revenue, and a lot of them don't have the stomach for that. So I think those are going to just ride the gravy train till it's over. But it might take 20, 30 years. These are giant cash cow mutual funds, um, and I think a lot of those are, are just going to ride the train. But for if anybody wants to survive in the new world and get organic flows, I would just use this metaphor. Think of a bag of potato chips or Doritos or whatever. People do not want to pay for the air in the bag. They just want to be charged for the chips. And, you know, sometimes you buy a bag of these chips, you open it, and there's like 10 chips in there, 
and it's like 70% puffy air at the top and you feel gypped off. And so I, I just, <laughs> I would use that metaphor, just charge people for the active. All right. I do want to make sure uh, we save a little bit of time for crypto ETFs. And I knew I was being ambitious with the uh, list of topics I want to cover. So here, here's what I want to do, Eric. Let's go rapid fire on a variety of topics here. So I think maybe, I don't know, 30 to 60 seconds uh, each okay. answer here. We'll burn through these and then we'll get to uh, we'll get to crypto ETF. So first, I'd love to hear D- Dave uh, Nodig and I last week talked about some surprising ETF successes and failures this year. I- I'd love to have you offer one of each and-, and this can be on anything. So is there something that happened in ETFs this year that truly surprised you uh, in a in a positive way? I mean, honestly, so I think money market, mutual funds, I know that's not a great answer because it's not an ETF, but this year mutual funds are going to take in more money than ETFs. Now, it's because of money markets, <laughs> but they're going to, they might reach a trillion dollars in flows, Nate. I mean, that is a shocker. I, I just never thought we'd see a year where mutual funds took in more. Now, a lot of times we look at flows, we carve out money market funds and we look at X and we look at stock and bond. Th- those will obviously not outperform ETFs. But to me, that's a shocker. But if you want a ticker, one that I was talking with the team about that we all thought was a, a great success, feel-good hit of the year is Box, B-O-X-X. Mm-hmm. This is the Alpha Architect one- to three-year ETF. It, it, it imitates um, a, a short-term treasury bill, but it uses options, so there's no distributions. And it's just a nice, quirky little innovation. And it's not even Alpha Architect's main thing. They're quants, but they just found this little, you know, here, we're going to help you out here with this little thing because I know you don't like distributions because of the taxation. And it's got half a billion in in less than a year. So funny. Box is actually one of the uh, stories I highlighted last week, so I completely agree there. Um, what what about a surprising ETF failure? Uh, you know what I'm, you know what I'm going to pick. It's not surprising. It's disappointing. Is the inverse Jim Cramer ETFs, uh, yep. Jim? So the it and I had uh, Matt Tuttle on our podcast, and I I said Matt that he goes long short. So he goes long the ones Cramer wants to short, and short the ones Cramer wants to long. The problem with long short in the ETF market is that no one in ETFs appreciates sharp ratio. Institutions, they like that. They want low vol sharp ratio. That's how you evaluate a real hedge fund. In ETFs, you need shiny object moments because no one's using this for the core or their alt bucket. This would be a hot sauce play. So he, he didn't design it right, in my opinion. He should have had one that goes long his shorts and one that goes short his longs. Then one of those could have caught fire, depending on the market environment, and the beta would have given it some lift, and then Kramer's awfulness at making stock picks would have given it the extra edge, and it might have had, like, you know, doubled the market or something, and it would have caught on. So that would be my disappointment of the year. No, I agree. Again, I highlighted those as well, uh, both the long and short versions, and I feel like maybe – Tuttle does a great job of marketing. They could have done a little better job marketing these, and maybe that gets back into the construction because any time – Kramer had a bad pick, I would have been out on social media and everywhere else trumpeting that bad pick and saying, hey, this, we, we're either short this or, or you know, long if it's the inverse um, in the ETF. But, you know. Who, yeah, the, yeah. Pro- the problem ahead. is he said, he said short Bitcoin. So this thing, I think, I think S. Jim bought Bitto, and Bitto went up 100% since then. Yeah. It's a great classic Kramer call. But other things in October, like stocks going down, totally offset all of the run that Bitto was able to contribute. So it's like a wet blanket on these awesome picks. So he, the, the fund wet blankets itself all the time, and yeah. it, it never has that chance to have, you know, uh, a shiny object moment. All right, a few other um, quick topics here. Give us your favorite new ETF in 2023. 
My favorite new ETF in 20... I'm going to shock you here. I'm going to go with the um, iShares Target Day Funds. <laughs> I would um, not have guessed that. <laughs> I know. Well, I didn't either. Then we had the guy from BlackRock on ETF IQ, and I, I, I was like, why would you do this? Advisors are not going to use this. They want to be the deciders. They want to pick the allocation. Why would you do this prepackaged stuff that's normally a 401k? And he said, we're trying to go after people who don't even have 401ks. Um, and I, when I wrote my Bogle book, one of the things I had at the end was Bogle has done so much for 50% of the world, the people who invest. But there's 50% of America that doesn't invest, and it's hard for them to access. This is a really good idea to try to go after those 50%. I find that to be a noble mission, and it's smart. These people, this is a very easy way to get access to very low-cost iShares ETFs. You don't have to do any work. In fact, you could make an argument. I'm not saying give this money to BlackRock, but Tyrone Ross said this in my book, and I put it in there, which is give everybody something like this when they're born and basically have it accumulate assets all year, I mean, all life, all your whole life. And then when you're 21 or 18, you have to pass a financial literacy test and you can get the money or you can get you know, your account. And it should be pretty, pretty full by then because capital markets work for people. So, um, again, I really think that's interesting. Will they pull it off? I don't know because, you know, advisors are the predominant market for ETFs. But I think if anybody can pull it off, it's BlackRock because they have so much firepower. Uh, but that, I think those are interesting because, they again, they have failed. Target date ETFs have just failed uh, year after year over the past 20 years. No one's been able to really make them work. But um, we'll see. Now that technology is a little better and getting to people might be easier, perhaps. Yeah, I like that pick. Um, I agree with you. I think the biggest challenge there is going to be that advisor uh, statement risk, that they don't want a single ETF showing up on a client statement. Advisors are the biggest market. So iShares will have to overcome that. Um Besides anything crypto ETF related, what what would you flag as your ETF story of the year overall? I mean, one, you know, I got to, you know, it's a toss between money markets because, but I already did that. So let me go with the Qs. This freaking index, man, the QQQs, like on our team, we always talk about it because like Ethan was writing about international uh, last year. Uh, James writing about small caps. Some of our analysts are like, okay, so values back. And it it's, all these things have this like five minutes of fame and the cues just comes roaring back and just crushes everybody like Godzilla. And it's just, it's astonishing how much this index overpowers everything. We actually looked at a study. Only one manager in the past 15 years has beat the cues. And it's only because they have 40% waiting to Tesla and another 10% to SpaceX. It's basically an Elon Musk, Musk mutual fund has no diversification, but everything else lost. That's out of thousands of active managers Thousands of like smart beta ETFs. Again, it's just astonishing, and the fact that it's so accessible and easy to get is is amazing. Um, and even Spy looks, you know, pedestrian compared to the Qs. And we always talk about that. We're like, oh, International had a had a nice week. Oh, that that'll be fun. The Qs will just come back and kick it. So when will the Qs domination end? I don't know. The value of these American companies and the innovation it just might be like it's just so special. That index just happens to attract, like, the greatest innovation in America. And it's just – it's amazing. So we, we keep, like, joking about the Qs. And this wasn't supposed to be the year the Qs came back. Value was supposed to have a 10-year run. You know, they finally came back in 2022, and it was like, okay, value is finally going to have the – is going to be the – lead the regime. And it only lasted, like, a year. And the Qs came right back. And I think this time was really painful for the value folks. And I'm not sure where we go from here, but – 
Uh, certainly, I think that was a huge surprise. I don't think anybody and, – and the money was late. The Qs and, and the market in particular was up 20 30% into May before anyone even started buying it, it at least in terms of ETF flows. So it, it shocked everybody. It's amazing. I just pulled up the performance here as we're talking, up about 45% this year. And, you know, going back to ARK and Kathy Wood, think about the run that they had in 2020 – in 2021, and this is and this isn't to pick on Arc, by the way, but you know they're they're branded around disruptive tech. This is supposed to hold the most promising, innovative companies. And if you go run uh, since inception, QQQ versus ARKK, it's not even close. You know, to your yeah. point, it's Q, the, the, the Qs, Qs are holding all the innovation. Like, I used to call Arc, um, you know, the Qs on steroids, but you could also call the Qs uh, R, uh, the Qs Arc with cash. <laughs> I mean, these companies have a ton of cash, and that, that kind of matters. So I think, you know, in 2022, a lot of the companies that had cash flow, you saw the, the cows and cat are huge uh, ETFs because they track free cash flow. Cash mattered, whereas in 2021, cash flow wasn't as big of a deal. It was more of a growth era. But the Qs kind of have both. They've got that sort of growth innovation mojo plus a ton of cash. And that I think that's why – they're able to dominate everybody, including including stuff that has a higher beta than them and a lower beta. I like that. That's a good uh, story of the year in the ETF space, one that I, I don't know that I was thinking of but makes total sense. Um, okay, very quickly, give us one prediction in the ETF space for 2024. I would say, again, non-crypto ETF related. Sure. Fidelity moves into the top 10. Ooh. Uh, currently, they're 13th, so it's not a crazy prediction. But they've got to get $30 billion, and they've only taken in about $4 billion this year. I just sniff my gut, my spidey sense tells me Fidelity's uh, going to do some big things in the next 12 months. It's time. They've waited long enough. They've kind of like – Fidelity is such a monster powerhouse, and they've really tiptoed into the ETF market at this point. I think they saw DFA and probably got jealous. And I think we're going to see some big moves where they just climb the leaderboard quickly. Could be even higher than than uh, than ten. They there, there's a point where I think number six or seven where you hit like a little bit of a gap. Uh, first trust up through Vanguard, I think that's the top six. Those are like on like a hundred billion and more. But I think they can get up to potentially even seven uh, with sixty five billion. So if they double their assets by thirty billion by the end of next year, they could be seventh, eighth, ninth somewhere in there. Um, and I, that's my prediction. Well, and again, like Dimensional, Fidelity now has that ETF share class filing, which if the SEC could get comfortable with that, that's obviously a huge tailwind in getting uh, you know assets into to ETFs. Um, and th- they should start converting their index mutual funds into ETFs. Do you know they have a trillion dollars in index mutual funds? If, if those were all converted into ETFs today, they'd be bigger than State Street. So... Their index mutual fund is, is quietly becoming a behemoth. And so even if some of that converts, which would be, I think, no problem. I think a lot of these people, I know, well, it's, we won't get into complications, but even if a little portion of that converts, right, $30 billion, right, boom, they're in ninth place. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, okay, it just a few minutes left. Let's, let's get to the topic everyone wants to hear about, which is spot Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> or at least that. And, and look, the topic we want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and I did think, here's, here's the good I news. I think I'm driving my team crazy. I think, I think it's getting a little crazy. But I love it. You love it. Let's geek out. All right. So um, 
I, I don't want to regurgitate all of the usual stuff. I think, as you know, I had your colleague James Saford on uh, again a couple of weeks ago. He did an excellent job of laying everything out. Yeah. So I'd say, listeners, go check that out if you want all the detail, the regulatory stuff, et cetera. So, so here's what I'll ask you, um, Eric. I guess first, just give us your current thinking around approval in, in sort of the time frame there. But more importantly, you and I have covered this topic for a long time. And, and as we've talked about, we've had a lot of fun with this out on Twitter. You've made T-shirts around this this topic. There's there's clearly a lot of uh, excitement and, and hype here. But, uh, but here's what I'd like to have you do. If we just take a step back, remove all the hype, I would love to hear how impactful you think a spot Bitcoin ETF will actually be. Like, like try to put that in context, which I think you do a better job of than anyone in the ETF space. Like, what will a spot Bitcoin ETF mean? Yeah, look, at the end of the day, here's what this needs to be looked at. These are bridges. These are bridges from the traditional world of advisors and boomers who have most of the money in America to the whole crypto universe, namely Bitcoin and and Ethereum. And that's all you need to know. These are just essentially bridges. And there's plenty of people who are like, well, I could just, why won't these advisors, you know, why don't they just store it themselves? But they can a lot of times where they don't want to. People like convenience. People trust the ETF. Advisors uh, are obviously risk averse, so they'd rather just give BlackRock the money. We've always said that BlackRock and Vanguard ETFs are the IBM of this era, meaning that in the 80s and 90s, they said you could never get fired for owning IBM if you were an advisor. Just today, you just you can't. A client could never give you crap for owning an iShares or Vanguard ETF. It's just that it's that uh, prudent of a of a move. So. If BlackRock and iShares and other big names are on these ETFs, that's huge. And I'm not saying all the money is going to move over. You know, we don't know how much demand there is. I think there has been a shift, though. In 2021, Bitto came out and had a billion dollar trading the first day and a billion dollars in two days in flows. We will not see that. To me, that was a fun launching in the midst of a mania. And it was really retail driven. A lot of the trades and the, and the orders were real small. It was a lot of like it was almost like a like a giant pool of minnows who hadn't been fed in a year. And so that's what Biddle launched into. What, what these are going to launch into, those minnows are gone. They either have Coinbase accounts now, if they're really into it, or they're just over crypto. The tourists are out. But advisors is like putting your line into a, a similar-sized pool, but there's only like medium and big-sized fish. And anybody who's fished knows that those fish are a little pickier. They take a little longer to come to your hook. That's what this is going to be like. So I don't see this, like, frenzy of buying on the first day or week. But I do see some big fish, uh, bigger, you know, fish than uh, small retail coming in eventually. For certain advisors that want to, you know, a small allocation to crypto, uh, this is how they're going to do it. And so uh, my my thoughts is somewhere between 25 and $30 billion after the first year. But a little, perhaps an underwhelming first week or two. Um, you know, I, I could be wrong. That's where I think we're, we're going to go around because GBTC has 20 billion alone. So even if like some of that comes over or if that converts instantly, you have 20. But I would almost say that we've seen an extra 10 beyond that. Um, and it uh, could be more. But I, I want to keep it conservative because just like the weather on my the weather on my Apple iPhone, uh, like people should be pleasantly surprised rather than disappointed. So I would stick with that somewhat conservative estimate for what we'll see when they roll out. Are you and uh, James still at 90% odds of approval for January? And I know uh, James did a great job of highlighting this current open window for the 19B4s, which I tried to recap. 
Um, and obviously the 19 B4s are just half of the process. The other process is having the S1s or the S3 and Grayscale yeah. case approved. But are you still thinking these will actually come to market in January? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I think when it comes to our odds, this gets complicated because let's say the 19 B4s are, quote, approved uh, next week. I mean, it's done because the Trading and Markets Division and the Corp Fin Division, which is the one that approves the S1, they're both reporting to the 10th floor, which is where Gensler sits. So Trading and Markets isn't going to approve it and then the other division not. So once Trading and Markets approves it, I mean, we're pretty much done. And this is where Todd and I are going to have to have probably an argument because, <laughs> well, I win my bet if it's approved in 2023 because we all know that it's it's now just it's now just details to, to be worked out. Okay, when's the S1 approved? Who's going to go? What date? At that point, it's all just like details. My take so, on that, if, if it's actually approval and not launch and the 19 B4s are approved, let's just say before the end of the year, I think you win that bet. Like, period, because the SEC has approved because, it. Yes. Yeah. And I got to go look at the original tweet. There's a tweet somewhere with the wording, and I think I used approval, not launch. And let's face it, the spirit of the bet was that the SEC would come around this cycle, and they did. I think he would probably even admit that. I'd be willing to go Dutch with him just as a show of, like, okay, they launched in January or February, but they're approved in November, December. Uh, we'll call it a, 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 a uh, what you call a push in uh, in sports gambling? That'd be a push. Um, that said, I may have to go back. If I find the word approve, I think it's my steak dinner. But I do think we're going to see 19B4s approved this year. Um, yes, one, perhaps a little later. But we, we haven't seen I, – I would like to see the next round of comments come back. We haven't heard anything about that. There have been one round of comments, one round of updated S1s. So where when are those going to come? How long will that take? The holidays might make things a little slower as well. But the 19B4s, I think, is what we're all watching. Now, they have till January 10th. So I would say if they wait till January 9th to approve the 19B4s, no doubt Todd wins that bet by nine days. Um, so I, that's sort of where I stand. Um, but like I said, we're still leaving a tiny percentage uh, to get Genzinated, which is to have the rug pulled out of some just, you know, shocking X factor, you know, who knows. Um, so I just want to make sure, because when you watch, you, you, you see a game on ESPN and you track the percentage winning odds, uh, there's a couple times where a team has 5% chance to win and they, and they actually win. You know, <laughs> like I think the Patriots, Falcons threw a ball. I want the, Patri uh, the Falcons were like 98%. Um, it can happen. So, <clears throat> but we're, we're pretty confident at this point. Everything we've been hearing and seeing uh, speaks to a normal process. The SEC engaging, coming with comments. Normalcy is what you want to see, and we've seen so many normal things this cycle versus, again, every other cycle with this. We've seen radio silence, radio silence, and then, bam, a denial. Yeah, I think you and I are on the same page. I think the 19B4s will be approved before the end of the year, if not over the next week. And then I expect these products actually come to market in January. But you're right. Can you imagine if, if for whatever reason, the SEC reversed course and denies all these things. I mean, if that happens, truly we won't see these until you and I are in the uh, the nursing home. <laughs> yeah, or Gensler's gone. I mean, I don't know what has to happen, um, but that would be something. Um, you know, uh, again, like I said, we we left a little window open for that because we've look we've been around this for ten years, and honestly, I think you're you're with me here. People are like, 
oh, you're just, you just think this because you own Bitcoin or you're bullish. I'm like, not really. Um, the reason I'm pro this and so into this story is the other ways to access Bitcoin are inferior to an ETF. We're just pro retail investor. And a Bitcoin ETF, a spot Bitcoin ETF, eliminates the stupid roll costs from futures. It eliminates all the high costs on these exchanges. These crypto exchanges made a mint basically charging high commissions. ETFs kill that. Um, and then, you know, MicroStrategy, which is a stock that people use as a surrogate Bitcoin, that has other variables attached to it. A spot Bitcoin ETF gives investors the best possible deal for something that tracks the price of Bitcoin in a convenient way. And that's all we're pro. And so I, I was pro this 10 years ago. So um, this is not about Bitcoin for me. It's about the ETF being the best possible wrapper for retail investors, you know, almost all the time. And in this case, definitely versus what else is out there, not to mention GBTC, which again is, has a huge third variable in that you can't arbitrage it. So the price veers away from the NAV. It's like a closed end fund. So, you know, the amount of like, in, in my opinion, this was a little bit of regulatory malpractice not to approve it. Um, and you could say, well, that's all whataboutism. But I, whataboutism matters because we know retail investors use these other methods. That's the reality of the situation. So I just think just get it done, get it out there. The ETF has a great track record of doing a bang-up job tracking almost anything. You can stuff almost anything in there, and it's going to do a great job because of the power of arbitrage. And we're going to see the same thing here. So, again, that's largely where my passion and interest and pro uh, pro approval has been more about the ETF helping retail get the best possible deal than has about being pro Bitcoin or crypto or anything. We're out of time here, but I'm so glad you made that last point because I've said this for a long time. People have conflated my uh, advocacy for Bitcoin ETFs as somehow me saying Bitcoin itself is going to go to the moon. And that's not the case. It's exactly what you highlighted. There are so many suboptimal ways that have been put in front of retail investors to invest in Bitcoin. And, and those investors want that Bitcoin exposure. And we've given them many of the, 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 the worst possible ways to get that that access. And we know the ETF vehicle will track the price of Bitcoin very closely, do so at a low cost, et cetera, et cetera. That's always been my advocacy. It's not a, an investment statement on where I think uh, Bitcoin is going to go. But, but Eric, we are going to have to leave it there. I, I need to leave us like two hours next time. Uh, this is always so much fun. Hey, By listen, the way, you're not going to bring up the eagles in the we're, we're going to have to do it on that's Twitter. The that came on. Okay. <laughs> we're going to have to do that. We're going to let, eagles let's, are going to win. That's the answer. All right, uh, let's take that to Twitter. We're going to come up with a good bet. But thank you so much for joining me this week. You got it. Pleasure. That was Eric Balchunas, senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg.